If we can help our system improvements reach the bedside, then we're contributing to better outcomes for patients for large numbers of those patients in our care, in our hospitals. Welcome to Trauma Talk. Today, my guest is Tracy McDonald, the VP of Trauma for all of HCA. We're going to be discussing how to set up and also the pros and cons of a PI program and why trauma is important to not just the hospital, but the community it serves. Tracy, thanks for being on the show. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure thing. Sure thing. Well, my name is Tracy McDonald, and I am currently the Vice President of Trauma Burn and Reconstructive Surgery for HCA. And this is a new role for me. I moved into on December 4th of last year. Prior to that, I was the Assistant Vice President of Trauma with HCA Mid-America for the past three years. And uh, in total, I've been in the healthcare industry for over 30 years. And really, I'm a Midwest native, even though I'm living in Nashville now. The South is new to me. I received my bachelor's in nursing from Missouri Western State University up in St. Joe, so just a little bit over the border from uh, Kansas, and then my master's of science in nursing from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And so, you know, before joining HCA, I worked as a trauma and burn program director for over 15 years at two different Kansas City local uh, level one trauma centers and uh, and also uh, was over a burn center. So trauma center wise, I started off at Truman Medical Center, uh, now called University Health in downtown Kansas City, and then moved over to the University of Kansas Health System and and had uh, both their um, their burn and trauma centers there. And so I've been really fortunate also to have national and international leadership opportunities to serve in the realm of trauma and burn. And, and some of these have included the, the Society of Trauma Nurses, where I've been a topic, which is their Trauma Outcomes and Performance Improvement Course uh, instructor. I'm a American Trauma Society Trauma Program Manager course developer and instructor for many years now. And we just revised that course for the ATS this past fall. Great resource for anybody who's looking to take an introductory course in in the role. I also serve as a uh, nurse surveyor for the Verification Review Committee for the American College of Surgeons for Trauma Centers, and then several states, including the state of Kansas. I'm also a state reviewer for trauma. Uh, and then the really big fun thing that I got to do last year is I spent last fall in Ukraine where I was asked to come over as a consultant to their civilian trauma and burn system. Uh, obviously, with the war, uh, there's a lot of civilian injuries on top of the day-to-day run-of-the-mill trauma. And so many of the resources are diverted to the war effort, of course, and, and that has really left their civilian trauma system uh, and burn system struggling. So I was uh, part of a team uh, that went over physicians and nurses and uh, spent some time in uh, Lviv, Kiev, and then got uh, pretty close to the front in Cherkasy uh, uh, to do that work. And uh, that continues. Uh, and we're doing mostly remote support now, but I hope to go back this year. Tracy, that's really impressive. You also bring with you quite a bit of experience from the American College of Surgeons, don't you? 
Um, I also was able to uh, be a contributing author for the new ACS resources for optimal care of the injured patient, so AKA the charcoal book, which are the trauma standards that uh, that the American College of Surgeons puts out. I was a contributing author for a couple of the chapters for the Emergency Nurses Association uh, TNCC course, 8th edition. And I've been uh, fortunate to be able to publish several things in the areas of trauma and burn care uh, in research as well. Could you talk to us about how you got started in trauma? So kind of backing up a little bit more to give some more perspective on where I came from for trauma, my background actually is critical care nursing. And and while I did both medical and surgical, I really fell in love with the surgical aspect of critical care and the trauma piece. And so, um, you know, before I became a trauma program manager, I had to get my foot in the door in the trauma program. And I started there at Truman Medical Center and came in initially as a registrar, which, uh, you know, some people may think that seems like, you know, not not an extremely exciting role, but I really think it was one of the most beneficial things to me in a foundational level for coming into trauma and being successful later on. Eventually, I, I became the trauma case manager and then educator and injury prevention coordinator and then PI coordinator and did research coordination for a time. And I think that living in each of those roles has helped me be a stronger trauma program manager. And of course, I've also been fortunate to have really amazing people in all of the roles within the trauma program over the years, which is the real key to success is is you know building those relationships and playing off the strengths of your team and having a really good cohesive team. And that's going to look very different, of course, at a level one center versus a rural center. You know, typically at our at the rural centers, uh, you know, that your team you're a team of one, but um, you know, you don't have that direct reports, but actually your team extends into the other department areas. You have to learn how to how to build that together. So I think really in reflection, having a really strong knowledge of the trauma registry was so helpful for me in my subsequent PI coordinator role and the later the TPM role. So I, I think, you know, in the rural areas, those folks are doing the registry too. So they have that strength built in because they have that experience. Tracy, would you mind explaining what your current role with HCA is as VP of Trauma Burns and Reconstruction? Sure thing, Aaron. Yeah, so my current role involves oversight of 103 trauma centers. We are the largest by far uh, trauma system out there. I think the next one down is Ascension, and I think they have 16 trauma centers, so a lot. Uh, We have 10 level ones. We have 41 level twos, and then we have 27 level threes and 25 level fours. And of course, there's there's countless other hospitals that we have in the HCA system that are not trauma centers, but do end up providing care for injured patients. So they are still part of our trauma system and our trauma team, even if they are not currently designated or verified. We also have 12 burn centers and four outpatient-only wound centers that are under my purview. So what do I do? I My job really is to ensure that we're meeting the regulatory standards and that we're advancing clinical quality up to, up to the level that that 
the resources that that facility are able to provide. I have three direct reports. Two of them are in trauma and one are in burn. So I don't have a big team. Everything else I accomplish is through matrix reporting structures with 15 division trauma leads that report directly into their division leadership and then the individual hospital leadership uh, that are providing the care. We also have a great model in HCA. We have 11 advisory committees related to trauma that ensure that all these recommendations that we produce at the corporate level are really coming from input from the trauma centers in, in, in they're thoroughly vetted through our facility level leadership. So examples of those teams are like the surgical, the surgeon clinical resource team, which we call CRT, which is a panel of uh, different surgeons that uh, are in our different trauma facilities. And then uh, the Trauma Nurse Advisory Council, which is probably the most productive council I've ever seen. And they produce, you know, many guidelines and tools that, that our facilities are using. And those, that's, that's 100% uh, facility level leadership that's in that council. And then um, we also have our adult and pediatric TQIP advisory councils that look at our data, our benchmarking data, and help us identify as an organization what do we need to focus on. So, Tracy, with you overseeing so many trauma programs, what is the difference now with trauma patients and trauma resources during the pre- and post-COVID era? Wow. So, I'll first start with rural hospitals. We've been so concerned about their financial viability in the rural areas. When when I was working really closely with Kansas over the years, you know, we see these places shuttering their doors. Their their communities are smaller. Uh, they just can't sustain. They can't attract providers because they're so rural. And you know, this generation of providers too. You know, if they grew up in those towns and then they go to medical school, they may not be as likely to come back as maybe the older generations were. So. That was a huge change before COVID, but now with COVID, I feel like rural hospitals have got a double whammy. Um, you know, they, they're feeling this, I think, harder than our urban hospitals. And, you know, it's really a paradox because just at the time when many hospitals are struggling to keep up with clinical staffing and program resources that can be hard to obtain, the new standards for the ACS and then I think the states will follow are, are published which require even more resources. And, you know, they're asking for an increase in registry staffing, and there's a new standard for PI staffing. So even if you aren't an ACS center, the strain to get these resources right now is real. And it doesn't look like our economic situation is going to course correct anytime soon. We have to do the best that we can and work as efficiently as we can with the resources that we can get. As far as patients post-COVID, I think that, um, you know, I think that the, the trauma has been trauma has been trauma. We, we didn't really see an, a huge slowdown in trauma uh, during COVID, and certainly, you know, people are still out doing the things that they've always done that put them at risk for injury. Why is it important to have a facility-wide systematic approach to treating trauma? So I'll tell you, you know, I'll start out with just, you know, our mission statement for HCA because I think that kind of is the overarching reason why. So above all else, we're committed to the care and improvement of human life. 
And, you know, that really speaks to what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent harm from reaching patients. We're trying to improve the outcomes for patients. Why is trauma a big deal? Well, well, first of all, I would have to say that if you're treating injured patients, one of the things eventually you're going to have to do is inform people what trauma is because even within our own facilities and definitely within the community, people don't really understand what trauma is. For one thing, you know, they think about emotional trauma because, you know, that's true and and that, you know, that does tie into us somewhat. But when people hear trauma, sometimes they think about, you know, PTSD and all that. And then a lot of times people equate trauma with just anything emergent that comes into the ED, like they think about overdoses and all that. And so, you know, educating them, we're talking about physical injury. And, you know, they and they may not equate these minor injuries with trauma, but, you know, broken arms, broken ankle, broken hip, all of those things are trauma patients. So, you know, when we broaden that scope a little bit, you do think about how much of the burden of injury is actually probably cared for at non-trauma facilities and then, you know, our, our, um, our level threes and fours. Only the tip of the iceberg ends up in these level ones for sure. And our level twos really are the, the, the big community providers that will see a lot of our more severe injuries as well. You know, when we think about it, there's very few and far between level ones. So, um, you know, it's a big thing. And trauma remains an epidemic nationwide. You know, when you turn on the TV, there's a hundred percent, I can tell you that I've never gone through a session of the morning news where there wasn't some form of trauma being reported on, whether it was a shooting, a car accident, a building collapse, an earthquake, a tornado, whatever. And, you know, in the U.S., there's 150,000 deaths annually. And the big thing about that, when you think about it, is that it's the fourth leading cause of death for all ages, but it's the number one leading cause of death for ages 1 to 44. So why is that important? Well, when you think about it, people in that age group typically don't die from something else. They don't die from their, you know, medical corp comorbidities very frequently in that age group. So, you know, we're talking about a killer of people who are still in the prime of their life, who are productive in the workforce, who are supporting their families. So when when they're injured or when they are killed, that means that it impacts their family's ability to economically survive. It impacts society as a whole because they're no longer able to be in the workforce. And if they do survive, they typically have some degree of um, support that they're going to need, sometimes lifelong in the case of spinal cord injury and, and brain injury. So, um, you, you know, um, there are 3 million non-fatal injuries annually. That's that's a, a good portion and 50 million visits to the ED each year related to trauma. So it's a big contributor. And, you know, what we do as nurses and other providers for each patient every day is important. I will never forget that sense of accomplishment, leaving my shift as a critical care nurse, knowing that I did the best I could. You know, how amazing it was when I resulted in a good outcome. Maybe I helped with that. But as a trauma program manager or a leader of your ED, you know, we have the opportunity to scale that. If we can help our system improvements reach the bedside, then we're contributing to better outcomes for patients for large numbers of those patients in our care, in our hospitals. So PI is rewarding on a different way than we knew at the bedside. Maybe it's not as tangible in the moment because you're not seeing that actual patient that it reaches, but it can be deeply satisfying to know that you made a huge impact because of the work that you did.
Could you walk me through what a trauma system is and why a trauma system is important to have in place for any hospital that treats trauma patients? Yeah, a trauma system is an organized, coordinated infrastructure in a defined geographic area, and usually in a state when we talk about the United States. And it's designed to provide care to all injured patients, and it should be integrated with public health systems. And when we think about that, it usually has four major components. So pre-hospital care, huge, underrated, underfunded, acute facility care, Post-hospital care, which we may not think about, but, you know, rehabilitation, SNFs, all of that is really important to that journey for the patient and important in having access so that we can get patients out of the hospital, and there's a big barrier. And then injury prevention and public education, which sometimes we may not think about either, but really if we're doing injury prevention correctly, we're trying to put ourselves out of business. Ideally, nobody would have injuries. And, you know, when you, when you think about trauma, it's really a disease because it fits that public health model. Trauma is largely preventable, and that's a piece that we, we need to make sure that we don't leave out of our trauma systems. Now, when we talk about a trauma system, you'll hear people say it's either inclusive or exclusive. So an inclusive system is where every hospital has some type of a role in treating injured patients and they participate to some level in that trauma system. And then the exclusive model means that injured patients should only be cared for at limited numbers of facilities that have a specific designation. So we'll g- I'll give you a, a local comparison here for what I just talked about. So um, when I first started out in trauma, uh, you know, there were still many states that didn't have trauma systems, and there's few now that don't have developed trauma systems. Missouri was an early adopter. They they became a trauma system very early on in the in the late 70s, early 80s ish. Kansas was a little bit later, and they're a relatively newer trauma uh, system. And when that was designed, it was purposely designed to be an inclusive system. So if you if you um, are, are familiar with Kansas, one of the things that the Kansas trauma system does is asks all hospitals, regardless of whether you're actually designated as a trauma center or not, to collect registry data and submit trauma registry data to the state. And so, you know, we have level one through four designated, but then our non-designated facilities still contribute to that body of knowledge. And that is very important uh, from a perspective of planning the system in the future. Missouri, however, is an exclusive system. There is no participation on any level if you're not designated, and they only have level one through three. So I feel that uh, Missouri excludes such a huge geographic and population, uh, you know, in their trauma system because they don't include the rule really to any degree. It's come to, you know, a major hub or you're not participating. And I think that the success is determined um, by the degree that the trauma system is supported by public policy. That is why it's so important for us to be aware of what's going on in our legislation and to be an advocate. So, you know, write letters, um, go and provide public testimony. 
And, you know, our, our public policy dictates so much with, you know, how we designate trauma centers, how we fund the system, how, you know, how does EMS have funding and what are the laws that are affecting EMS in relation to peer protection and all that. All of those things are essential for our, our trauma systems to evolve and adapt. You know, and, and, you know, really what we're trying to get at is having, you know, great access to care. So getting the right patient to the right place at the right time and making sure that anybody where, no matter where they live in our state has, you know, access within a reasonable time frame to some level of care that will provide initial stabilization and then effective transfer if that's what needs to happen. And, you know, we want better outcomes with less overall cost. So even if you aren't a trauma center, you're getting injured patients, especially in the rural areas, because, you're, you know, you're it for that population in that geographic area. So it's really important to deliver coordinated care that results in that rapid identification of injuries and the need to transfer. So knowing that this injury exceeds your resources that you have at the local level ability to perform some type of basic stabilization and then some some pre-plans that allow for a seamless transfer process. So that's in a nutshell what, you know, what you play in in the terms of a trauma system no matter what type of hospital you are. So why is a program improvement program or a PI program important for any facility that treats trauma patients? Absolutely. So one of the questions, if you're a leader in a facility in the ED or in trauma that you're, you're going to ask yourself hopefully pretty early on is, are we a good trauma center or are we a good non-trauma center providing care to injured patients? And so how do you even answer that question? Well, the PI process helps you evaluate that answer through measurement of performance. And so when we talk about performance improvement, you'll hear the term PIPs, performance improvement and patient safety, and those are kind of distinct. So performance improvement, in my mind, is really that you're looking at events that have happened and you're trying to uh, mitigate so that those things, those harm doesn't come to future patients. Patient safety is uh, is proactive. So we are trying to foresee what types of weaknesses we have in our system that need to be corrected before they cause harm. So, you know, hospitals need to demonstrate some type of process of clinical and system evaluation for trauma care or injured patient care, which includes loop closure and outcomes of patient care. So the first thing is, is we all want to deliver safe care. So whatever we're doing for patients, we're not causing additional harm. We want also, though, to go beyond that and our care to be effective. And effective means that whatever it is that we're doing, whatever treatment we're applying, it's having that intended effect. So, you know, we're not doing something that is worthless, that's not having the effect that we're intending. Um, and then we want it to be patient-centered. And this is really big in the rural area because think about a lot of the population there. They are elderly. So what do they really want to have as an outcome? And it may be very different from, you know, what we may be thinking. Their outcome may be totally different. They may want to stay in their in their local environment despite knowing that they may not be able to to have uh, a neurosurgeon or what have you, and those decisions are are very important. 
Um, our care needs to be timely. We had talked a little bit about the golden hour, but, you know, what does timely mean for this particular injury pattern? And then uh, we want our care to be efficient. And this is going to be so much bigger for us now that we're sliding into worse economic times. Is And we don't often think about PI doing this, but efficient means that we're delivering the best care and outcomes that we can at the most, um, you know, at the lowest cost that we can do it. And that gives value. So having, you know, uh, outcome over cost is the equation for value. And like I say, that's really important that we're not wasting resources. And then last and not least is something that, again, we probably don't think about when we think about PI is equitable. And when I say equitable, I'm not just talking about making sure that we're not, um, you know, giving a different level of care for somebody who's elderly uh, when they, if they want that full level of care. But, you know, we're not changing the type of care we give based on age, race, sex, and all that. That's part of it. But then also equitable means that we shouldn't be giving a different level of care when it's 1 a.m. on Sunday versus when it's 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. We have to be able to provide the correct standard of care no matter what time, day of the week, month, whatever, when a patient comes in. So why do we do PI? Well, it helps us evaluate our patient care outcomes, our providers' response and, and treatments, our systems performance, But ultimately, it improves patient care at the bedside level. If it doesn't reach the patient at the level of their bedside, then it's not doing what we intend it to do. And I think by the process of PI, we're also helping to foster competent and current providers. We have such a young workforce right now. We've had so much turnover, and we're talking EMS all the way through, right? These people are fresh because a lot of the other people left during covid And so if we're doing PI, we're getting feedback to these bedside providers about what went well and what didn't go great and what we need to do to change it. And uh, I think, you know, I think we've mentioned that, uh, you know, all of those things, but when you, when you think about what are the, what are the qualities of an effective PI program? The first thing is, is that it's data driven. It's systematic, so you you have something written down. You know exactly how you're going to perform this. You're not just making it up every day you come in. It's measurable, so back to using the data. It spans the continuum of trauma care. So I like to say from ditch to discharge, but really kind of more than that. So pre-hospital all the way through reintegration, back to wherever these patients came from, their schools, their work, and all that. So we have to look at the whole thing. Uh, mentioned it directly impacts care at the bedside. Um, It has authority and accountability for that program. So whoever is running this, whether it's the trauma coordinator or the ED director, they have the authority to be able to look at these cases and make the changes that need to happen. It has a well-defined organizational structure supported by the hospital and their leadership, has appropriate evidence-based standards of care that we're measuring against. If we don't have a, a way to say, you know, this was this was the standard or not, then we don't really we can't really judge. And then has clearly documented process for review, analysis, and corrective actions. So Tracy, what advice would you give a non-trauma center hospital who wants to create a PI program? 
Um, so the Kansas trauma system was designed to be inclusive. So even if you're not a trauma center, you are collecting trauma registry data and submitting it to the state. And this allows the state to do epidemiologic studies on injury and improve the trauma system. So you're really already participating in PI whether you know it or not. It also gives you access to the state data benchmark report via the web portal. If you're not familiar what that is, there's somebody in your facility entering trauma registry data into the web portal, and they will be able to show you how to access this report. Any confusion, contact the state Kansas trauma program. Those folks are willing to help and are, are extremely dedicated. So um, this... Uh, it, I would say that the the first step in in doing something with PI, if you're not a trauma center, is to integrate these reviews of this benchmark report quarterly with your hospital quality department. So that just means get the report and go over it with your quality department. So what is the state report? It's just a resource. It is an aggregate look at the data that you've submitted. It allows you to compare regionally and statewide with your own facility in several areas like volume transfers out and then some quality measures. So these quality measures point at possible areas of opportunity to improve. So when we designed this report initially, we wanted this to be an easy thing so rural hospitals could just take a look at this and have a start with PI. So we defined some indicators that are in this uh, report, and I'll just go over the broad categories of what they are, but the, um, the, the definitions of these are also available on the Kansas Trauma website. It's at www.kstrauma.org. So the indicators are transfers, and this gives you a benchmark of your transfers out against the state in a time-defined uh, manner, and that is four hours. Then there are critical transfers, which go with that golden hour. So it defines critical transfers by some physiologic measures. So it's looking at your data and saying if patients met this critical transfer measures by their physiological data, did you get them out within that hour or not? Then there's also indicators on airway management, head injury uh, management, transfer out, chest tube placement, whether your trauma team leader was timely, if you have one of those, EMS delay at transfer, management of dislocations, non-operative management of low-grade spleen injuries, um, management of hypovolemic patients that require a laparotomy, and then documentation, which is also a great place to start if you're having trouble with getting this data in the first place. So it gives you these indicators, and what it tells you is how many patients actually applied to each metric. So maybe you had three patients this quarter that were critical transfers. And then it tells you how many of them successfully met the benchmark. So maybe you got two of them out within the 60 minutes, but the third didn't and it will actually give you the trauma number of that patient. So this is ready-made for you to go and find those patients that were outliers for these indicators in that list of the, of the, of the trauma numbers for each of these metrics, see which ones uh, indicated that there may have been an opportunity, and then you can go and review the case and figure out, you know, was this really an opportunity and can we do something about it? And so I think if you're not a trauma center and you don't have, a, you know, a PI program already, then I would say, again, work with your hospital quality department. They likely already have a structure for this. 
employ the assistance of your nursing leaders from the various areas. So I would say typically for a facility that's going to transfer out a lot, you're looking at your ED nursing leaders, but probably also someone within your hospital C-suite, like a COO, CNO could help as well. Uh, and then if you have folks like infection control and all that, typically they're very good at looking at data and change management, so they can probably provide some support as well. Is there anyone you'd recommend including in the PI process that isn't a part of the hospital? Oh, very good. Yeah, absolutely. EMS. Don't ever forget EMS because, uh, you know, in, in the rural environment, it's so important that y'all work closely together. Um, you know, patients die of rurality, meaning that sometimes these folks are in the middle of a pasture. It takes forever to go get them. So they're behind the eight ball already in terms of having transport delays because of just their rural nature. And so it's really important that we give feedback to EMS about, you know, uh, did they make the right routing decisions? Did, was their management appropriate in the interim from getting from point A to point B? And then, you know, oftentimes in the rural area, EMS becomes part of the trauma team. They come in and they start working, and they're often the most experienced folks with some of these injuries as well. So I think that the first thing is, is if you're not a trauma center or if you are a trauma center in the rural area, how do you integrate them clinically? And then how do you integrate them in the PI process? So are they invited to committee meetings? Uh, Do they get written feedback? Are you coming out and doing case reviews with them? I think that those things are important. And then, you know, finding out what they need to overcome any of the issues. Tracy, what are the common pitfalls you've seen throughout your experience with PI programs? Yeah, absolutely. I would say blaming instead of looking for opportunities. So, you know, you have to have a culture of safety. Uh, Don't think PI is easy and that it can be done quickly because it doesn't. Um, and I think, you know, there's leadership challenges. We're all overcommitted, but particularly in the rural area, most people are wearing many hats, so you have to be work smart. Um, you don't want to work in a silo. Again, pull in all of your resources and share what you're doing with others in the facility. Um, and, you know, just know that no program is perfect. There's no precise prescription. You have to make PI fit for what you need at your own facility, what your weaknesses are, what resources you have. Um, if you are a trauma center, your medical director must be engaged. If you're not, you need to find a physician champion leader, uh, so typically someone that works in the ED to help you with your efforts. Um, make sure it's multidisciplinary, again, pulling in, uh, you know, if you have orthopedics, your EMS, your emergency medicine folks. Keep it positive, so focus on opportunities for improvement versus this was bad care. We know that most errors are related to system failures, not people. And it's most effective when you integrate with your hospital PI. What advice would you give hospitals to help them sustain and adapt their PI programs? Yeah, so I would, first of all, I would say, what is your structure? So do you have the authority to do your role? If you need support positions or able to get them, do you have those job descriptions? Do you have some type of a plan written down about how you're going to do this? So look at what processes are already in place. If you're in Kansas, you know you at least have the registry, which is a big deal. And then, you know, have you already defined some outcomes or key performance metrics that have been established? Do you have any guidelines that you can go by to compare care against? Um, I think those are are important places to start. And then um, when you look at um, sustaining the program and adapting, just 
you know, continue to review your data and the results in your actions. It's a cycle. It's kind of like um, laundry. We're never finished. <laughs> it's always going to, there's always going to be the next thing. Um, but again, you know, I would look for, look to your quality department, maybe your risk management to give you some pointers on, on getting started. And then I think sustaining it really is when you have successes, share that because as you build these, these quick successes, people are going to take notice and the more positive results you get, uh, the more people are going to want to be part of that and help support you. Could you walk me through a case study example? of how a PI program works? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, you know, the first thing is, is that, you know, if you find an event, again, you have to establish a goal of what it looks like when it's fixed. So I'll just kind of go over the steps first, and then we'll go over the case study. So you want to establish your SMART goal. So specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely. And then review your case carefully. So you're looking for the root cause. So you're going to talk to bedside staff, talk to EMS, observe the process. Don't just read the chart. Be aware of your own biases and, you know, look out for biddy-waddy. Biddy-waddy means because that's the way we've always done it, and it's not a reasonable reason to call something acceptable. And, uh, you know, be aware of evaluating the case based on its outcome. Always ask, what could we have done better? And, um, you know, have a provider review the case with you uh, so that you're getting, you know, a medical perspective as well. And uh, then, you know, come up with a determination of what you actually think the root cause is and what your opportunity is. And then you're going to work on your corrective action plan with your subject matter experts to keep this from happening again. And then last step is, is, is think about how long you're going to re-monitor future cases to make sure that you really fix the issue. So, for example, each transfer will be monitored on a weekly basis for six weeks. So here's the typical thing. You know, you walk in on a Monday morning and somebody says, hey, trauma coordinator, did you hear about that trauma last night? It wasn't good. And then you're like, oh, gosh, you know, no Monday is going to go unpunished, right? So we do our primary review, and that means you're gathering firsthand information. We're reviewing the chart, just like we talked about. So in this case, let's say the night shift RN states the flight crew waited 40 minutes to transfer a critical head bleed. The chart shows the MD held the transfer waiting on FFP. So the coordinator calls the receiving hospital for a patient update, and the patient went for a crany and is in the SICU on the vent. The subdural was large with herniation. They don't think the patient's going to make it. Um, they enter the info into the PI log, and then you start working on, you know, was this a real issue, and does it require further review, and you determine that. So the next thing we call secondary review just means somebody else is going to take a look at it, typically a physician, your medical director, if your trauma center. So maybe you have a PI tracking form, and you take that to the TMD for review. So in this case, the TMD says there was a delay to transfer that may have, been, may have impacted the patient outcomes because we don't have a standard way of managing these patients. This is systems-related. Let's review the case in a committee format. So that's tertiary review. So now, if you're a trauma center, this is your trauma committee. If not, maybe you're taking it to a hospital quality committee. So you're going to put together a short timeline of events, including arrival, assessment, vital signs, CT labs, um, including, you know, whatever was done to try to treat this. And um, you're going to bring evidence-based information. So maybe you're going to bring a, a, a sample or example Coumadin TBI management guideline and information on four-factor PCC to the group. 
and it's discussed in committee. So, you know, you, you determine then you need a PMG and a means for rapid Coumadin reversal. And you determine there was, this was an event with opportunity for improvement. And your plan is that you're going to have a team put together to implement PM, a PMG on four-factor PCC and monitor subsequent cases. So maybe you document something like the committee reviewed this patient on January 28th of 2022. Uh, the goal would be to provide rapid reversal and transfer the patient out within an hour of arrival. There is a delay of about 45 minutes to obtaining cross-matched thawed plasma. The committee expressed that it would be helpful to have a guideline and order set for reversal of Coumadin for the head-injured patient. The use of four-factor PCC could provide near-immediate reversal. Realizing this will take significant planning and staff education to implement, a PI team will be formed to manage the project consisting of an emergency medicine physician, a pharmacist, the ED manager, and the trauma coordinator. So now the team gets together and they start planning um, and uh, they plan to implement in February, March. The drug gets approved by a phys- uh, P&T committee placed on the formulary. There's a sample PMG that meets the needs of the institution. The drug company assists the educator with ed- staff education. And uh, the PMG becomes posted and completes education in May with a go-live implemented in June. The first patient to receive the drug is June 26th. So the committee gets back together, looks at the information on that first patient case, and we determine, uh-oh, incorrect dose was given. It was too low, but the transfer was timely. And so um, the, the dose calculation cheat sheet... Yeah, is developed and um, we're going to continue to monitor compliance. So the loop closure is is that they're going to look at the next six months of cases and they do review that and they were all appropriate. So we can call this success, maybe have a media story, definitely report this through our facility. Tracy, if someone in the hospital setting had more questions on program improvement or the trauma system, who could they reach out to? Well, always start with the trauma referral center that you primarily transfer to. So if if in this case you're uh, in the catchment area of Wichita and your primary transferring facility is Wesley, then you would reach out to the trauma program director, Randy Kane. These folks have a responsibility to help if they're, you know, if they're your level one, level two. In some cases, if you're very rural and the closest facility to you is a level three, then those would be the people that are are slated to help out the other facilities in their catchment area. And likely, they'll be eager to help. Uh, there's many ways they can help you. So perhaps they can look at your PI plan or the format that you're doing your minutes in um, or your documentation forms for PI and give you some feedback back. Uh, perhaps they would look at your action plans and help you discuss about what to do about specific PI issues. How do you solve it? How do you fix it? Um, they may help you identify key performance indicators. So if you're a newer trauma center or a smaller trauma center and you feel like you're ready to address some other issues but you're kind of stuck, they can help you with that. They can also point you to the right uh, PI education and make sure you have access to knowing what those things are out there. They may be able to allow you to shadow certain things like some of the PI coordinator work in their facilities, keeping in mind that if you're a level three or a level four, your PI process is going to look very different than the one in a two, but it still may be helpful for them to see some of the basics. They could potentially help you with reviewing your preparation for your designation visit, 
from the state. They can certainly help with regional PI issues. And, you know, also I would say besides your uh, lead agency, which is your, your trauma referral center, um, the state also is a lead agency. So look towards the Kansas Trauma Program. They have many resources on their website, and they have state or regional education opportunities on PI very frequently, so those schedules are posted there. And the last thing that I would recommend is taking the Rural Topic course, which is a course that's a product of the Society of Trauma Nurses, and that is a PI course for trauma specific to rural facilities, and you may find that very helpful. Tracy, thanks for being on the show. We hope to have you back again. If you have any questions for Tracy or myself, you can always reach me at aaron.shutton at wesleymc.com. You can always listen to our past episodes at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.